Well, we don't have an exciting title. As most of you know, we're going to be starting a study in the book of Chronicles. I say the book because originally it was one book. It was split into two for the sake of scroll length, but it's one book. And so the title for tonight is Chronicles Introduction. And I know that should be enough to really whet your appetite for what we're looking at in the book of Chronicles. Now, as I was thinking about how do you, how do you jump into Chronicles? Well, I thought I wanted to comment on a couple of things. One, the Bible is one cohesive story communicated to man by God himself. So if we start with that mentality, we'll be asking ourselves, where does Chronicles fit into that story? Because like most books, the Bible has a message to communicate as part of that story that's being told. And the primary message of the Bible is one of redemption, rescue, and reconciliation, all really referring to the same thing in slightly nuanced ways. Now, if mankind, who is sinful and unrighteous, wants to live in God's holy presence, they will need to become or be made holy, as God is holy and can't have any fellowship with unrighteousness. So, unrighteousness and sinfulness has to be dealt with. And since man can't make himself holy or righteous, God will need to provide a way of rescue. And you think about rescue from what? Well, we know that from the very early pages of the book of Genesis, we have the fall of man into sin and rebellion recorded. So after the fall, the big question as we look forward, and we know that Chronicles is a ways into this storyline, but as we look forward, the big question has been from the fall of man forward, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world and his people? So as you think about how can I make the Bible smaller or understand the Bible a little bit more clearly? Well, you have everything's made perfect. Then you have sin gets in the way and taints things. And then you have the big question being asked, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world and his people once it's revealed that man cannot rescue himself, himself which it is from the very early pages again of Genesis shortly after the fall? So the story of the Bible, then, it progressively reveals additional details about God's rescue if the overall story is primarily one of redemption, rescue, and reconciliation. So beginning with Abraham, God reveals somewhat indirectly that the rescuer is going to be the descendant of one man. Now, we don't know that early on, although to some extent we know that in terms of the way that God reveals a semblance of that truth to Adam and Eve, even from the third chapter of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, I think, if I have the reference correctly. So from your seed, there's going to be one who will crush Satan's head, but will have his heel bruised in the process, depending on your translation of that. This idea that there's going to be an offspring that will be the one who can remedy this problem that man has fallen into with sin by trading in God's truth for Satan's lies. So now if you're keeping the story just bigger, having a big picture zoomed out, not too zoomed in view, we now see who th how through Abraham we're starting there, God is going to reveal that this rescuer is going to come from Abraham's descendant or the descendant of one man through whom all the people of the world are then going to be blessed, blessed in terms of several things, but primarily rescue, redemption, and reconciliation. Now that's why we have so much focus on the storyline or why the Bible fo primarily follows the story of Abraham and his descendants because of that simple fact that the vehicle for God's plan 
of redemption, rescue, and reconciliation is going to come through a particular bloodline. So naturally, we follow the story of that person's family if we're going to understand God's ongoing progressive revelation of that plan of rescue, redemption, and reconciliation. Now, that promise to Abraham, it's supplemented with the promise that this rescuer would be a king who would come from the line of David. So you think about how the covenants drive the narrative or they drive the story of the Bible. And, and in some ways, that's very true. The, the dispensations maybe explain the, the, the rule or the administration of that plan, but it's the covenants that ultimately drive the storyline. So that second primary covenant or major covenant that we're looking at, and it will be covered extensively here in Chronicles, is this Davidic covenant, this covenant that is effectively just an extension of the promise made to Abraham. That Abraham, I'm going to have land, seed, and blessing all through your descendants. And then later to David, that line is going to be through you. It's going to be a king. And this kingdom is going to know no end. And they'll always be maintained that hold or that, that line or that lineage to the throne. It will always come through you, David. And so you say, well, that's why the Bible follows the story of Abraham and his descendants, his family. That's also why the Bible focuses on the Davidic line of kings. Why is that so important? And, and that's the answer to that. So as could be anticipated from man's prior history, man's part of the story, individually and collectively, it's one of consistent failure. So you ask, well, what's man's part in the story? Man's part in the story is to continue or for God to show through man's failure that man cannot rescue himself. And you could guess that that would be true because everything leading up to these parts in the story has been a story of man being treated graciously and mercifully and lovingly by God and consistently failing. So that man, if, if man was supposed to fix himself, it would be clear that man couldn't be the solution to this problem because man keeps messing it up, so to speak. In fact, the collective Old Testament story of Israel, it concludes with defeat Exile and dispersion, that's how the story of the nation of Israel ends. And so as you're thinking about this collective story, sometimes the story is focused on the individual, sometimes it's focused on the nation of Israel collectively. In the New Testament, often it's focused on the collective body, that is, Jews and Gentiles together as one in Christ, so the collective side of things. But it's always man cannot function or thrive apart from God's provision and intervention in their lives. So you say, if the collective Old Testament story of Israel concludes with defeat, exile, and dispersion, where is the hope in that? What about the promised universal blessing through Abraham and his offspring? Well, thankfully, the, the hope of the Bible is not sourced in man's failure. It's, it's sourced in God's faithfulness. So the hope of the Bible is not to be found in the story of man. It's to be found in the story of man as it interrelates or interconnects with the story of God and the revelation of who God is and how faithful God is. Now, you're saying, how is this getting to Chronicles? Well, Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So I was telling you about how did I end up deciding to do a study on Chronicles as we take a pause from Psalms having completed the first of five books of Psalms. And the answer is because I didn't know that. So maybe some of you would raise your hands and say, well, yeah, of course I knew that Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Well, I didn't. And so when I found out that fact, I wasn't okay with just leaving it at that. I, I wondered why. Why would it be the last book of the Hebrew Bible? Why would it have been arranged that way historically? Frankly, it was still arranged that way uh, to the time of Christ, as I understand it. So you think about why would that be the case? Well, it's because it summarizes the scripture from Adam 
through the symbolic return of Israel from exile. I say symbolic because after 70 years of exile, it's not like everything went back to the way it was. There was a return under Zerubbabel. We'll talk about that in a second, Ezra and Nehemiah. It wasn't a complete return, though, or restoration. It was, a, it was a picture. It was a partial restoration. But they were still looking forward through the prophetic writings to a final, complete, or thorough restoration that would come when the Messiah would be revealed. And so as you think about Chronicles, it's intended to review, then, if, if the picture of it is focusing on God's faithfulness despite the hopelessness of man, but focusing on God's faithfulness, God's promises for restoration, well, then it would make sense that it would be the last book in the Old Testament because it's intended to review the stories of the past in order to provide hope for the future as it relates to Israel's and by extension all mankind's real return from exile. Man is alienated from God, exiled from God. There, there needs to be this reconciliation that would take place. And that reconciliation was prophesied to take place or be, or going to take place, that it was going to take place through the coming Messiah. And so that's why we have the book of Chronicles. That's what it stands for. And what we're going to do here, Lord willing, tonight is look at some introductory materials related to Chronicles. Now, I don't know how much of this I'm actually going to get through tonight. We'll just, I guess, see where we go and we won't worry too much about about that. If we have to go over to next week, we'll, we'll do that. So for some of you, you know the storyline of the Bible really well. And for some of you, you don't. Some of you could mentally walk your way through the story of the Bible explaining what each successive part adds to the collective whole. And you could mentally walk, work your way through that. Now, I couldn't do that completely 10 years ago. Don't know if I can do it completely as I stand here tonight, I'm growing in my understanding. I'm learning more and more about how the pieces fit into the puzzle. I hope that you have that perspective, that you think about your Christian growth or your learning or understanding of the Bible as, as if it was a many thousands of pieces puzzle sitting out on your living room table and you were slowly piecing it together, knowing that God wrote his book with the intention that he could be known and understood, that what was written could be known and understood. He promised to give you then his spirit to help illuminate your understanding in this modern dispensation under the, the church age, the age of grace, so that you could understand more and more of these truths as you would have this mentality that would say, I want to know your truth. Do you think God is going to be the limiting factor in this understanding that you lack? God will never be the limiting factor in that understanding. It's your desire or your willingness to trust him to illuminate, you, illuminate your thinking and give you that understanding that you lack. If any man lacketh wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and doesn't hold back. And so as I think about that, uh, I'm still growing and I'm still learning more. But what I want to do before we get to Chronicles is I want to try to walk us up to that a little bit by talking about the biblical story that leads to Chronicles. Now, I don't want to spend all night on this. I've just got a few things to say about a few of these books that lead us up to the Chronicles part of the story. Now, let's start from the beginning. Everybody knows that the first month, maybe not everybody, maybe you don't know. You know that Genesis is the book of beginnings, but Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have creation. And if you want to turn there, turn to Genesis chapter 1. I want to show you that God wasn't in the business of cursing. God was in the business of blessing. And so God blessed the creation that he had made. 
It wasn't like God was hoping that man would fall. He loved man enough to not make them robots, but, and he, he knew how it might turn out, I guess. In that sense, God knew that, but he wasn't wishing for it. He wasn't setting man up for failure in that sense. He looked at everything that he had made and he said, behold, it is not just good, but very good. And so he blesses. God is in the business of blessing. He, he loves people desperately. He's for you. He's not against you. And you can read that from the 28th verse of the first chapter of your Bibles, Genesis chapter, chapter 1, verse 28, if I can get my pages to cooperate here. What does it say? Uh, go back to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. That doesn't mean exactly like him. That means as a reflection of him, as a way that he would be a reflection of the kinds of things that were true of God, but not a facsimile of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. We'll touch on that in Romans, our Romans study that we're getting into chapter one. People are confused about that now. He created them. Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, who? The people that he had created. What did he say? He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the, of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I have given this. Man didn't earn that. It was grace operation. It was a grace operation from the very beginning. But you see, God blessed them is how verse 28 starts. So we have this creation, perfect creation, man being blessed by God, but then what do we have? We have the fall, original sin, the first, the first recorded sin. And what happened with that? Well, man forfeits the blessing because of sin and rebellion. That leads us up to God still acting in grace, but God had, God had blessed them in a sense with there was no problems, everything was perfect, and now because sin had damaged that and broken that, they had to experience life under the curse now instead of how it had originally been designed. So if you watch, if you follow that far enough, you're going to see how man in that age, we call it, that was, man was created in the dispensation of, of innocence. And then you have the fall of man. There's always an event that precedes or causes to there to be a change in the house rules or the rules of administration as we think about God's dealings with mankind. We're just really, you could call it that, you can just say this is how we explain the story is that things are changing. And then there's a, major, there's a major change there. So now we call this the age or the dispensation of conscience. And that goes on where mankind is left to their own devices to some extent. And what happens? You pretty, pretty soon you get to the, the, the pre-flood times where wickedness of man is the only thoughts, every thought of man is only evil continuously. And so then we have God step in when it gets to that point where you have man's failure. Man's, man's failure leads up to a time of judgment there where you have the flood. And the flood marks a, a new start in a sense where all those who would trust God, take God at his word, would accept the rescue and the salvation that God made available. They got on, on the ark because that's what God said to do. That's how God said that they could be rescued. But it didn't take long before you're reading these ugly stories about Noah getting drunk and planting vineyards and getting drunk and the shame that comes on the family through some of the events that happen there. It's not too long before man's back to his own ways. 
operating apart from God, not trusting God, not allowing God to lead and direct in his life, not, not living or experiencing life, a life that's set apart and holy and righteous as, as God is directing and working in their life and they're trusting God to undertake and lead and provide. It doesn't take long before that's not the case anymore. And so then what do we have? The big failure. Well, that leads us up to Babel. Okay, and at, at Babel we have this situation where Man decides they don't need God. They're going to reach God or try to reach God on their, on their own. And leading up to that, we had a time of human government where people were trying to rule themselves or regulate themselves, having some instituted rules for society, that type of thing. But all of a sudden, they don't need God in, anymore, and so you have the confusion of the languages at Babel which some say was in Babylon, which we'll talk about in, in our story here. And so then if you come forward, well, then we have a change in dispensation. We have man's failure there. And instead of God then continuing the story through all of these dispersed nations or dialects or tongues, instead of God following all of these, he picks one, one group. Well, and that's centered on one man, Abraham. And he says, new house rules, new, new plan of administration here, and we have the entrance of the dispensation of promise. And so with Abraham, you have Abraham's calling, you have the promises that God made, the covenantal promises that God made to Abraham, starting with the 12th chapter of Genesis, running all the way through the 50th chapter of Genesis, the end of Genesis, you have this blessing that is, that is made to Abraham, or this promise that's made to Abraham of of national blessing, not just for Abraham, but for all of the nations of the world, along with his seed being numbered greater than the stars or the sand, and also that there'd be a promised land. But the thing that we're tracking here right now is the blessing. There's a blessing there that there would be restoration promised in the future. That's what's being promised there, even though it's not said maybe directly. And that's how Genesis ends. We move to Exodus, and we, we see that this story ends with the people thriving the, the sons of Jacob, led primarily by Joseph's position where God, man had meant things for evil, but God worked it together for good. Joseph, Joseph is there as the second in command in Egypt. The rest of Jacob's sons, along with Jacob's family, some say 70, some say that was just the 70 that were listed, but there would have been more people associated with it. But in any event, they end up in the prime land in, of Goshen in Egypt, and they're thriving as a people. God is providing, God is undertaking in this dispensation of promise. And as you think about that, that's how Genesis ended, but Exodus begins with a sadder story. How that thriving in a land, not the promised land, because they stayed there, when God had said, this is the land that I'll show you, this is the land that I want you to be in, not here. Well, it had turned into bondage. Then we have the story of Moses as the first redeemer in the Exodus story. That leads us up to that's about the first half of the book of Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt leads us up to the covenant at Mount Sinai. And the terms of the t covenant are laid out, not just the Ten Commandments, but many other aspects of this fence that God's going to put around people for the sake of protecting them from themselves. The introduction, introduction through, that, through that failure in the wilderness of not being willing to trust God, there's this introduction of now the law is given and this dispensation of the law. And so that's taking place. The book kind of focuses toward the end of, on God telling them, build me a sanctuary. 
which is a picture of regaining access to God's presence through sacrifice for sin because every aspect of the temple or most aspects of the tabernacle, which was the pre-temple dwelling of God, that was focused on holiness. It was focused on cleansing. It was focused on the shedding of blood or sacrifice to deal with man's sinfulness. Well, the story then gets you to Leviticus. And most people, when they're trying to read the Bible, isn't it true that when you get to Leviticus, you kind of stall out a little bit? But the truth is that Leviticus isn't, it's, it's complicated and it's not applicable most to, our, to our time. We're not focused on these specific things. But if we could look back, zoom out from Leviticus and see it more in a big picture, see it as all about the holiness of God. The story of Leviticus about how can sinful and selfish mankind be reconciled to this holy God if God is holy, and he is. About how God is graciously providing a way for sinful and corrupt people to live in his presence. If unjust and sinful people want to live in God's presence, they need to become righteous or holy is sort of the underlying story of Leviticus. Their sin needs to be dealt with. And that's what this picture of both being set apart in terms of as a light to others, but being made holy so that we can approach God on his terms. And so God gives some instructions about that. And they're very detailed, broken down into the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Some of it has to do with how to run or administer a nation, but a lot of it has to do with being set apart, being holy being a holy nation, now focus being on national Israel, but of course you don't have a nation without the individuals in it. How can a sinful man approach a holy and righteous God? And God says it's through this picture of cleansing, through this picture of, of being made holy. It's this picture of redemption and sacrifice and the shedding, the shedding of blood. So you, you keep following the story, you get to Numbers. Numbers takes you from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. Numbers is really a story of ongoing rebellion by mankind. So we have rebellion in the wilderness. God brings judgment, but he also shows mercy. So instead of wiping them all out, he just says, this generation's not gonna go into the promised land due to unbelief, but God is still faithful. He says, the next generation, I'm not gonna hold the sins of the fathers against them. They're gonna have the opportunity to enter into my rest, hopefully as a result of Faithfulness, so what you have here is you have Israel's rebellion in the book of Numbers, all these wanderings in the wilderness, but the wanderings led, caused by the rebellion, but what you really see in, in Numbers is just another story or another example how people would act in rebellion, and that rebellion could be contrasted against God's faithfulness. So man would be unfaithful, and yet God would remain faithful still. So then when you come to, finally we're going to we have some conquests on the Transjordan side of the Promised Land, on the far side of the Jordan River, before we actually go across finally into the Promised Land in the book of Joshua. Of course, we know Moses doesn't go with, but in the book of Joshua, how is the story unfolding? Well, man now still has another opportunity to enter into God's rest. So what does Joshua talk about? He starts out by saying, so remember, look back and remember all the things that God has done because Joshua knows that in order to be successful, the people of Israel are going to have to get past having such short memories where every time a hardship comes up, they turn back and they look at human circumstances. They, they look at the leeks and the garlics and the meat pots in Egypt where they were in bondage. They forget about the rescue from being slaves. They forget about the Red Sea. They forget about the manna from heaven. They forget about clothes that don't wear out and shoes that don't wear out. 
They forget about Jericho. Well, they're going to forget about Jericho. They forget about the conquests of Og and some of these other nations on the Transjordan side, the east side. I may have been getting that wrong, maybe east or west. They forget that. So he says, remember, remember. And enter and experience God's rest is what he's trying to communicate. Trust and obey God. And then as a result of that, you'll be an example. You'll be able to show other nations what God is like. You'll be able to fulfill the mission of being a nation of priests, priests who are bringing people to God in a sense by people being able to see the difference, people being able to see the reflection of God in their lives. Sounds similar to what God wants for us. So the story continues. They get into the promised land, but they still won't learn. You have the story of the judges then. And that's, that's ultimately a story of Israel's total failure. Starting with the failure of the leadership, and then starting with the failure of the people, and then ending with the, sto- the failure of the people. You see, they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. They become so different, they become, sorry, they become no different than the Canaanites as a result. Because they didn't drive out and separate themselves from the world. That's why that's why the Bible has that as a theme. To be, to be a friend of God or to be, the friendship with God is enmity then with everything else. Just like the reverse is true. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's why John is saying in 1 John, you, you can't love the world, the thinking and the things of the world, and at the same time be loving God. Because they don't mix. One is diab- diabolically opposed to God, and one represents, the other represents God's truth. So the nation of Israel was always told, don't blend, don't mix. So even the kings were warned about things like, don't build military might, don't accumulate foreign wives, don't focus on money, gathering money. Why? All those things will take you away from God. Now, did they do all those things? Yes, repeatedly, repeatedly. And so Judges is no exception to that. So instead of remaining separate, holy, set apart, they become no different than the Canaanites that they refused to push out of the land like God had said. Ultimately, it comes down to every one of these stories. Either you take God at his word, you trust God, or you don't. So then we get to Samuel. This is a transition from individual tribes to a unified kingdom with a king, if we're going to summarize First and Second Samuel. So we have the story of Samuel himself and Saul, that makes up 1 Samuel. Then you have the story of David that makes up 2 Samuel. So are you following the storyline here? We're, we're, we're going through this story pretty, pretty quickly. Some of you are saying not fast enough, but we're going through it pretty quickly. But we're following the story about how God is continuously trying to get the attention of man so man would learn to trust him. Man would take him at his word. Man would stop trying to do things in rebellion and rejection of him, do things his way, but we do things God's way and see that God is the only one who can save. And that picture is being presented through many different examples, through many different symbols, through many different illustrations, but that's the the storyline. So you have this one nation that 
is the vehicle for the story now because it's the vehicle for the Messiah. We're not really focusing so much on what's going on elsewhere, though there was other nations all around, right? But this is the one we're going to track. This one person, because the covenant promised to Abraham is where it starts there. And, and as that promise is made, the, the land, the seed, and the blessing for the whole world, we're tracking how are we going to get to that? How are we going to get to that climax that the story is building toward? That climax, of course, being the redemption, the reconciliation, the rescue of Jesus Christ. And so Samuel then transitions us from, in those days, it, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Now one, on one hand, that's a tragic story because Samuel does say to them, he, he c- sort of confronts them later on and says, you already had a king. But the perspective of the people, though, is there's no king, and so that was actually a negative thing. But it's also, it's also sort of foreshadowing, too, about the, the king of kings. Because the story ultimately becomes a story about the Davidic line of kings, the promises made to Abraham, how that all culminates in one person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords, the Messiah, savior of the world. That's where we're going with, with the story. So then you get to the kings. You know, we know that we have this unified kingdom with Saul, David, and Solomon. And so, in a sense, King sort of tells the story of how did we get to where we are presently? How, how did we end up facing God's judgment? Because it's also written from you looking back at it. Uh, how did we get to this place where the ten northern tribes are dispersed and gone altogether? This, they're, they're referred to as the lost tribes. Uh, and Judah is in bondage and in exile in Babylon. How did we get there? So it's sort of answering that questions, question where, well, God was justified in what he did or how he dealt with us. Just read the story. So it, it picks up the story with Solomon as you get into the kings. And you have this other story of how kind of there's this interplay between the prophets who are speaking for God and the kings who are rejecting and re- refusing to listen to God. Also, the priests You have that aspect of it too, where even the spiritual leadership is failing, the civil leadership, the the kings are failing, and of course the people are failing. And so really it's a, a story of the road to exile. It's a story of how the kings ran the nation of Israel into the ground, Israel first, followed by Judah's demise or the demise of Jerusalem, and ending with the Babylonian exile. Then we come to the next part of the story. Now we have exile. How long was that exile for? 70 years. So there's other books in this, but the storyline doesn't really need those books so much. They add to it, supplement it. Uh, even the story of Ruth talks about how do we get uh, the Davidic line, but it's not the storyline is, is tracking the way I'm going through it right now. So now you have Esther written while they were in captivity, but you have two main books, Ezra and Nehemiah, talking about the exile. Daniel's written during the exile. Talking about the return, though, eventually from exile. And, and they stand for this idea that in the story, we always come back to God as a faithful, promise-keeping God. So 70 years of exile, it ends with the return under Zerubbabel, who was of the bloodline of David, Another thing that we can't lose track of, God keeps his promises. That's the the main theme here. Man is not faithful, but God is faithful, and God always follows through with what he says. So we have the return with Zerubbabel, we have the rebuilding of the walls with Nehemiah, we have the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of the priesthood uh, with Ezra. Now, 
we need to remember, of course, that that was not a full or final restoration. That was not a full or final restoration. What do I mean by that? Did they have autonomy? Did they have freedom? Did they have their nation back? Did they have their land back? Did they have, did they have the power and influence and strength that they had had prior to all this happening? No, they never again experienced that. It was not lasting, it was not permanent. And before long, you have 400 years of silence where not that much is known about people who are being dispersed with, without a country, without a king, without this priesthood, without a temple. That's what's going on in the intertestamentary period between the Old Testament and New Testament. So now we come to Chronicles. If Chronicles is the last book of the New Testament, not just a repeat of Kings and Samuel, what happens now? That's what Chronicles answers. So if the kings say, how did we get here? Chronicles really says, what happens now? And the answer is the story isn't over. Though you are still in extended exile, God keeps his promises. So if you think about the chronicler, and that's how the author of Chronicles is referred to, the chronicler, because we don't know exactly who wrote it, but the chronicler is trying to answer this question to a post-exilic Israel that's sitting there saying, I know from reading the kings how 20 out of 20 kings on the Israel side are evil. Probably 12 out of 20 kings on the Judah side of this thing are evil. We get to the point of Manasseh where there's no return because idolatry is pervasive in the land and there's children being sacrificed. We, we can't go back from that. So it's too late now by the time you get to even Jeremiah's prophecy as he's coming. It's too late now. There's going to be this judgment that's going to fall. That's the end of this in terms of you're not going to continue on with this as a nation. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be taken captives. It's going to be 70 years of exile. And in a sense, the promise is there's going to be restoration, but it's not. It's a picture of a final restoration that will come eventually, but it was not full restoration. So what happens now? Though you are still in this now extended exile, God keeps his promises. Meaning, this is after this 70 years of exile. There's been some degree of return. Remember, though, if you go read Chronicles in Ezra carefully, you'll see that when the offer was extended for the nation of Israel to return to Jerusalem, the vast majority of people that were Jewish that could have come back did not come back. What is that a picture of? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The more entrenched you get into the world around you, the less interest you're going to have in being a set-apart, a sanctified representative of God, a reflection of God's love, light, truth into the world around you. Because instead of pushing out the Canaanites, you're going to become just like them. That's why my kids, they're here, here tonight, I hate to put them on the spot, but that's why they are tired of me saying, when I bring them to an event, when I bring them to a practice, oftentimes I'll remember to say to them, you're not here to fit in. You're here to be a light for Jesus. Now, if they really think about that, I hope that that is something that their heart really wants, instead of it just being this thing that they just have to try to not here as, dad, as they're shutting the door and running inside. You're not here to fit in. This is not your home. You're not, you're not intended to blend in to the world. You're intended to be set apart and sanctified from the world so that they would see there's a difference in you. 
And that was the mission of the nation of Israel. And so as we think about this story of Chronicles, it's that God keeps his promises. There is hope, not because of looking back at man's past failure. There's hope at looking back and seeing that God has made this promise that of this kingdom there will be no end. That God made this promise that through you all of the nations of the world will be blessed and we look back and we see example after example after example after example after example of God's faithfulness. So as we look back, we can remember the prophetic hope of the Messiah. We can remember the prophetic hope of the future temple. The hope is not due though to man. It's due to God and his faithfulness. We're clearly not going to get through this introduction. There will be an introduction part two next week. But I'm going to keep plugging here a little bit because we're not quite out of time. Now who wrote this letter? And if you want to call it a letter, who wrote this book? If you want to call it a book. But who wrote this? Chronicles. Well, we don't know. We don't know who wrote the the books of Chronicles if you want to split them into two or the book of Chronicles if it's one. We can tell from certain details that it was written by somebody who lived after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Like I mentioned earlier, the author is usually called the chronicler. Try to say that 10 times fast. The chronicler, a title suggesting that he was a historian. It is possible that he was a scribe, priest, or Levite, but nobody knows that for sure. Historically, there have been, there's been much speculation. Some have said Ezra maybe uh, started this. There's not, there's not good evidence that Ezra could have lived long enough to have written all of it, and I'll touch on that in a minute. But evidently, the writer had access to governmental and temple arch- archives because repeated references are made to a number of official records of kings that, that they could have access to and otherwise would not have. So who was it written to? Well, in in an extended sense, it was written to you. The whole Bible is not written to us, but it's written for our benefit. So you'd say it's not written to you. Well, that's true. But it's written for your benefit. But it was specifically written to post-exilic Jews. So post-exile Jews. Next question, when was it written? When was it written? Well, although the events described in the Chronicles begin with genealogies from Adam and end with the announcement of the return of Israel from exile, the book was likely composed after Israel's exile between the 5th and 4th century B.C. Now, if you look at, if you have a turn, if you will, to 1 Chronicles, I know most, many of you carry this, a similar Bible to what I do, and if that's the case, then you'll maybe just note this. Is there any way to know all of these things for sure? No. But if this Schofield Bible that I'm looking at happens to be a New King James Version of it, but if you turn to the introduction page to the first book of the Chronicles, you'll see the date of writing, 5th century B.C. So that's in alignment with what I saw numerous other places. Now, how could that be known? And this is the answer. I'll explain it the best I can. It's known due to a reference to somebody in the line of David, or I think he's in the, the line of Jehoiachim, named Anini. This is in 1 Chronicles 3.24. So in 1 Chronicles 3.24, we're talking about the generations that are associated with Jehoiachin. And Anini was the eighth generation removed from Jehoiachin. 
according to that verse. Now, Jehoiachin was taken captive by the Babylonians in 598 BC. If 25 years are allotted to each generation, which it could go a little bit either way on that, Anini would have to have been born between 425 to 400 BC. So the author couldn't have known about him if it was written before his birth. Question then is, how do you know it couldn't have been written later? Well, because if it was written later, there would have been more steps in the genealogy. If the line of David was so important, they wouldn't have stopped with a certain individual. They would have listed everyone who had been in that line up to the time it was written. So it wouldn't have been written much later than Anini, because then there'd be other steps in this story that would have been included. So that's how they come up with this. It makes logical sense to me. But you would say maybe, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it speaks to the understanding that the return from 70 years of exile was only a partial restoration, and the final prophetic restoration was yet future. There's an understanding of that if it's written in, in this time period instead of, you know, fourth or fifth century, instead of in really close proximity to the return immediately from the 70 years of exile. They would have already had the return and they would have already figured out and already lived through the circumstances that are described where things were not great. There was not a, a real restoration in the sense of a restoration to how things had been that was never experienced. And you can read more about that again in Ezra and Nehemiah. So I think that's why it's important, is it tells us that this is a book being written to end as an ending to the Old Testament, as a book that's intended to give hope, to provide confidence, to provide hope for the future. And there's a lot more that we're going to go into. I guess this introduction is just going to be longer. I'm going to stop there for tonight. But I want you to hopefully, some of you, if, you, if you're the kind of people who like to have these kind of notes, I don't claim that these notes are all accurate, but if these are the kind of things that, just like the introduction to Romans, that you would like to be able to read through some of this uh, at your own leisure and to sort of familiarize yourself with some of what I've covered here tonight, again, just email me. That's the easiest way to do it. Email me, and I'll email you these notes. You can even have, probably you can even have the stuff I haven't even covered yet, so then you can review it ahead of time. So, takeaways. I'd say takeaways from what we covered tonight is that this is one cohesive message of how man has a real problem and God is going to have to undertake to make a way to fix it, a way to rescue man from the predicament that he's in. And so when you see the Bible that way, all of a sudden you can be asking the question, how does this part add to the development of that central storyline. And all of a sudden, when I'm thinking about these different parts of the story, I can say, that's not, that's not that hard. That's not as hard as it was for me to kind of keep track about what's going on here. Now there's lots more probably that could be, be said, even the areas that we covered here tonight, but we're gonna get into some of the themes, some of the overview type of stuff. We'll talk about why it was written. We'll go through a general overview or, or storyline of Chronicles so that we kind of know what's coming. And I think that's the, but Lord willing, we'll be able to get through that next week. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our first dabble into this introduction or background to the book of Chronicles. Pray that it would have been helpful to just 
add context so that we're not just jumping into a book with no context of how we got there. Pray that it would help us to stay focused on what you might want to show us about your faithfulness through your dealings even in, in the past with other people that we're not even direct, maybe directly connected to, but that we, you would see how you've always had this desire to, be, to redeem man from the estrangement that had been caused by their rebellion against you. And that your means of doing that was through the person and work of your son and that you started setting the stage for that story from the very early chapters of the Bible right up to the climax of the cross of Calvary that we read about in the New Testament. Pray that we would have some clarity about these things and that we would be interested in reading not just some of your truth but all of your truth and, and reading it with, an, with the idea that it's not a bunch of things just pieced together. It's, it's one cohesive story that we can understand about you, how much you love us, and how much you want to make a way for us to be with you, to live with you in holiness, recognizing that you would have to provide the means of making us holy since we never could on our own due to our sinfulness and due to our human limitations. Thank you again for this time that we could spend together. In Jesus' name.